i ngā maunga whakahiwa te motu, tēnā ratata katoa, ko James Beck tēnei, I'm James Beck and welcome to episode 5 of the second season of Ngahere. Over the years, I have realised that our planet is a bit broken, and that how we live here in Aotearoa, it's a bit broken too. And so we've got some pretty big questions. Questions about what our faith and the Bible might have to say about who we are and the way that we live and the way that we care for creation. Questions about how we develop a deep relationship with the world around us and with each other. Questions about why the church seems so useless when it comes to caring for God's creation and questions about how Māori and Pākehā can learn from each other and grow together. So if you're keen, I would love to invite you to come along on this crazy, beautiful six-part journey with me, Waiora Timone, and Dr. Andrew Shepard as we head to a remote off-the-grid hut on Banks Peninsula, hidden in the beautiful bush, surrounded by birds, to explore Ngahere, the many connections that exist between creation, the Bible, and living in Aotearoa. So no my, hide my. In this episode, we continue our journey through Genesis 2. It might even be helpful to read it before you dive in. I mean, who would have thought reading the Bible could be helpful? In the last episode, we discussed what the abundant life is really about and what it might mean for us to change the way that we engage with our stuff. If you haven't listened to that one yet, then maybe you should. But hey, I'm not going to tell you how you should listen to podcasts. But if I was going to tell you, I'd tell you to go and listen to it first. But you do whatever's going to work for you. So we pick up in this episode by talking about the story of the human naming the animals in Genesis 2. Maybe also one way to think about it is what does that role of a priest gardener look like in multiple dimensions? If gardening and priestly gardening is a way of discovering our identity again as kaitiaki, of doing the job of caring and of cultivating, if that's the the macro vocation or invitation, how might that then flow out in the myriad of vocations that we actually live in and the jobs that we do? The other part of that chapter is the invitation to take up that role. And the first way in which the creature then takes up that role is by naming. There's both a sense in which it's attempt to use language here to classify and to make sense so that one as a human can both play that role of tiaki because to do that you've got to understand and classify and categorise it. But at the same time, language forms the bond. It forms the language connection. Forms the it forms the connection. And so what's happening is Adama is naming these creatures. And so it both classifies and categorizes something so that we can then grasp it and utilize it and it becomes a resource but obviously involved in that also is connection so you think about what's the posture that's required what's the nature of a relationship for us to be able to name something what does one have to do practically see it which involves what being in relationship Relationship with it. it yeah thinking through that naming aspect of adam here naming creatures which therefore he has a connection with, he has a relationship mm. with. They're not unnamed, they're not nameless. 
they have personality they have something to them mm. talking mm. about like proximity and names like i grew up in ototahi you mm. know like underneath the port hills mm. and i looked at them and loved them my whole life mm. but then a few years back i decided i was going to run to the top of all of them mm. and in the process of doing that I learned all their names. Mm. Nice. And in the process of learning their names, I developed this entirely different relationship you know with them. them I know them but, differently. But what names were you learning then? Yeah, that's it. Mm. So I learned I learned their Pakia names mm. first. Mm. And then I found myself sitting on top of Mount Vernon mm. and God said to me, This mountain's got another name. Mm. And in going to try and find its Māori name, mm. that's how I got pulled into an entirely different relationship mm. with the whole of Aotearoa. Come mm. on. That's not even an overstatement, mm. and it's been transformative mm. in my own experience and my own walk through the world, and mm. it's entirely mm. changed the way that I relate to, well, everything, really, mm. especially this whenua. Mm. And then on a different note, like, when I was running through the reserve, and I had that sense that God said to me, someone should do something about this. This is a mess, all this Tradescantia, it's gross, you know. Mm. I don't know what the name Tradescantia was. I could just see that <laughs> weed wasn't meant to be there. Mm. And I'm not like a botanist. I don't know the names of all sorts of different plants, mm. but I knew that something needed to happen. Mm. And so rounded up some people and we started, you know, doing this project in this reserve. Mm. But by being in that reserve and proximity to that reserve, mm. I have learned all these names of all mm. these different plants. Mm. Mm. And now I, I see mm. them. Mm. We were before I didn't see them mm. because they were unnamed. Because they were unnamed, yeah. Because you and the unnamed, the informant, you didn't have a relationship with mm-hmm. them. Mm. Yeah, it was just bush. Yeah. But now I notice relationship to name is a real thing. I think about a question that a friend asked me recently. She said, "If I was going to introduce myself, would I say Kolana Tokuingwa or would I say Kolana Aho?" And I was like, "Well, it depends on your relationship to your name and how much you feel like you embody it." Because one, you're saying this is my name, which separates you from it. There's mm. a name and then use the person. Then that's Kolana Tokuingwa. If you say mm. Kolana Aho, you're saying I am yeah. Alana. Mm. Mm. I am my name. Yeah. And I said, so it depends on how much you feel like you are yeah. your name and how yeah. much it matters to you and how connected you feel yeah. to it. And she said, oh, I think I'll do the Aho. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Love yeah. that for you. Yeah. But I want to hear a cool story. Please. Yeah. This is one of my favorite stories actually about naming and about genealogy and about the story of it. And the prophetic nature of yeah, naming yeah, in Te Ao Māori. Yeah, yeah. So just as far back as my maternal grandfather, so my koro, his name's Tawa. And my mum and I spoke about it and how that was the future that my great-grandfather saw for him, for Te Ao Māori, the world that he was living in. Tawa means war. He saw that my koro, who would have been in his 80s if he was still alive now, mm-hmm. was going to be a battle for Māori. That's how mm-hmm. it was going to look. Mm-hmm. My koro was initially Ringatū, he got saved Presbyterian. And he named my mother, her name's Te Rauriwa, and I've got an olive leaf tattoo on my ankle for her. Te Rauriwa is from, the obviously, the story of Noah's Ark, and so he had a more hopeful outlook mm. of that olive branch and that possibility of newness, mm. and that was the vision that he saw. Mm. And then mm. the continuation of that story is my mum choosing to call me Waiora, which is from the story of the woman at the well and Jesus saying, if you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. You will have living wow. water. And so even just in three generations, the mm. projection from war to hope to living water wow. is such a beautiful story. That change happened in three generations is pretty special and the power of name. And embodied in name. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing you say in terms of we get this weird story about 
the human naming the animals. And it comes straight after the humans being given this crazy vocation to till and keep. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're highlighting for me is in some way we cannot step into that human vocation unless we are in proximity to other, Mm. unless we are able to name and be in relationship with other, and unless we are able to journey with another to Mm. step into that vocation collectively. Mm. We only care for that which we love. We only love that which we know. We only know that which we experience. So therefore, tiaki is linked to knowing something but that knowledge here is not a conceptual knowledge it's it's a a connected knowledge again it's that language here of the knowledge not of this distant classification but of a close proximity As we talked about the ways in which what we know impacts what we care about and what we care about is linked to what we experience or what we are in relationship with, it reminded me about a conversation that Waiora and I had had with my friend Michael Reynolds. Michael runs an amazing kaupapa called Roimata Food Commons and another incredible project called Tohakai. Tēnā koe It's lovely to see you. You too. I'll give you a filthy cuddle. Oh. Roimata Food Commons is a community garden based in the heart of Wollstone, right next to the Opawaho River, just before it joins Ihutai, the estuary, and then flows into the sea. It's a beautiful place for a corridor. What's the name of this yeah. reserve? So the park itself is called Bradley Park. Okay. And it's one of the few non toxic parks left in. Otatahi. What do you mean by non-toxic? So a lot of our public reserves are ex-landfill. Oh! And then at some point they decided there was enough rubbish there and so they would like dredge out of the river or or whatever and then put that material over the top and sow grass so that there's enough protection from the toxins for people to picnic and play in the park but they don't allow people to grow food directly into the soil Mm -hmm. in those areas because obviously the root systems may end up interacting with those Mm. toxins, which with some plants would then mean that those toxins are bioavailable to humans when they eat the food. Yeah. Whereas in this park, this park has never been built on, ever. So we compost on site here to build up the fertility and the life in the soil. Mm. We're completely organic in our approach and we've actually even managed to get the council to cease all spraying in the park. By doing that we're giving all the life in here a chance to start moving back towards as close as it can ever be to what it used to be like Mm. before we interrupted all Mm. those natural cycles. Yeah, And I think that's really important. I mean how can we have a relationship with Papatuanuku, with Mother Earth if we're constantly in this frame of mind that we need to control everything with these toxic tools that we've created for mm. ourselves. I mean, not only does it obviously have an impact on the life in any given ecology, mm. that has an impact on us mm. too, because we are not separate from that ecology. We mm. are very much part of it. You're just partnering with the natural cycle of things and doing your best to 
nurture and support or maybe slightly speed up a process that would happen naturally anyway Hmm. yeah i guess we're repairing we're healing the land yeah or having it heal itself even Hmm. just giving it the tools and the care and the love that it needs to to start doing all those things that it would do anyway love that easy should we have a look around do you want to give us a tour? I had biked through the park in the early 2000s and all there was was an old playground and a run-down dog park. But the place had been absolutely transformed. There were gardens everywhere, there were fruit trees, the place was flourishing. That's actually uh, Rainbow Chard. Oh, Chard! I love uh, Rainbow Chard. Relative of Silver Beak. I know what Chard is from Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah, and so this is what it looks like when it goes to seed. Each one of these, when it dries out, is a viable seed to grow another wow, plant. Wow! You know, wild. when you look at a plant like this, you start to think, okay, well, we've planted one seed and created one plant, but then that plant's going to create maybe thousands of seeds, which we can then wait till it dries, harvest, and then use those to, to create the next lot. We've got pumpkins growing through here. What's this guy? That's Cavolo Nero, or some people call it dinosaur kale because they think that it looks like dinosaur skin. So because we eat so so much packaged and processed food, mm. it's kind of known now through a study that was done here in Aotearoa that over 70% of all the packaged food that exists within supermarkets is considered to be deficient in micronutrients. And there are many scientific studies that exist that show direct links between a lack of micronutrients in your diet and poor physical and mental health. Mm. That is why we created Roimata Food Commons in the first place. Mm. We're in a a slightly lower socioeconomic area. Access to high nutrient dense food is limited. Why don't we just grow it in our local park (laughs) and make it freely available to people? That's not super different to what Papa Kainga used to be, eh? Yeah. A community of people with the well-being of everyone was was shared anything that can unify people give people a chance to connect and be generous to one another that's needed more now than ever yeah that's a public thing too yeah everybody does their own thing that contributes to the whole yeah everyone flourishes because of it we originally we started in 2017 with planting fruit trees and we did that because we were a pretty small group and we realised that if we started with a, a more vegetable-focused garden, there's a lot more care and time and energy that requires of you to mm. keep that thriving. So we thought, we'll start with the fruit trees and we'll develop it from there. Where did you start all the fruit trees? Is that all over here? So right down the far end. We originally got permission from the council to plant 30 trees. And we had two planting days within six weeks of each other. I think we planted about 65 trees. <laughs> <laughs> so these are all berries in here? Yeah, so we've got berries, we've got raspberries and currants mostly, we've got some citrus, so we've got grapefruit, oranges and mandarins, that all fruit. Nice. And we've learnt over the last five years as well what sorts of things really work in our climate and soil conditions here and what don't. And so stone fruit trees we've noticed so all of our plums and apricots and those sorts of things they struggle and they're nowhere near as I guess productive in terms of their fruiting mm-hmm. um, compared to pit fruit so apples and pears so all of our fruit trees that we've planted are all heritage varieties nice. it's a way of I guess showing people the amount of diversity that exists 
people don't realise that there were over a thousand different apple varieties bought to Aotearoa by Whoa. Europeans. And, I mean, we've got like 40 different varieties, which is a lot, but, you know, obviously a small fraction of what could be grown here. But they very quickly worked out what varieties worked well in different parts of the, the motu as well. And it wasn't just Pākehā who were experimenting with growing in New Zealand, eh? Like, yeah. lots of Māori communities were growing kumara, potatoes, heaps and heaps of fruit trees and yeah. keeping the seeds and, and mm. looking after them. I mean, the good thing about heritage or heirloom varieties, both in fruit and vegetables, is generally speaking, they tend to be more nutrient-dense. Ah, uh, yeah. Also planted over a thousand native plants along the banks of the Apawaha. Oh, awesome. So, so some of that's the, regenerating. So that those done. three areas along here were yep. all planted um, in 2017 as well. Ah, oh, awesome. Did you plant this huroeka? Mm-hmm. It's going crazy. Mm. So this is where it all started. This is the part where we planted the first tree. Wow. We've got this wonderful tree just here. It's a European plum. And I'm really looking forward to getting a ripe apple off this tree. So this is a, a Ukrainian cooking apple called a giant Antonovka. It didn't fruit at all for its first two or three years that it was in here. This mm. is the second year it's fruited. And yeah, there's, there's lots of varieties in here that are like that. Pears, for example, take a lot longer to get to a point where they start fruiting than apples. Some of our apples were fruiting in their first year. Um, most of our pears are fruiting for the first time this year, mm. five years after we planted them. Yeah. It's a long game, um, eh? Plums can take up to ten years to fruit. Wow. It's so much you, faster to go to the supermarket. <laughs> it is. But. But are you actually receiving the benefit? You know, if you go to the supermarket to buy plums, you're thinking, cool, I want to eat a nice, juicy, sweet plum, and it's imparting some goodness into my body. But plums from the supermarket are picked usually two to three weeks before they're ripe because they will continue to ripen after they've been picked and potentially maybe be ripe by the time they're on the shelf at the supermarket. Mm. I don't know if anyone's had a, a nectarine or a plum or an apricot from the supermarket recently, but they're harder than apples. So not only are you not experiencing the joy from eating it, but you're not actually even receiving the health benefits because the fruit hasn't been able to go through its entire journey mm. before you're able to eat it. And often we're eating food from places that are really not that close to where we live. And so there's a lot of packaging and a lot of carbon fuel used in order to transport it and refrigerate it. The cost to producing food like that is not necessarily a financial cost. It's an ecological cost. So we pay for it in other ways, but in ways that we don't account for when we think about the, the systems that we live within. One of the interesting things that's happened lately is that obviously the prices of fuel have gone up, so therefore the prices of food have gone up because of how much fuel mm -hmm. is used in producing our food. And so hopefully people are starting to acknowledge that we need to do it in a different way. Totally. There's a lot of money in the food system, eh? There's a lot of money... And there's also a lot of debt. Mm. So there's a lot of risk to people who produce food. Mm. I'm not pointing the finger at farmers mm. because they're doing things the way that they've been asked to do them. Our society has evolved along a track that bigger is better. Scale is the answer to everything because it makes it cheaper and 
because we ignore all of those other costs. Yeah. Mm, Food is interesting, eh? It's kind of the great leveller. Like as humans, everyone needs it. Everyone we all needs need. It. We all need to eat. Yeah. And we all benefit from being able to eat healthy, nutrient-rich food. And we all suffer when we aren't able to access it. And the systems that dominate our lives don't seem to be functioning in a way that actively works towards people having access to nutrient-rich, organic, healthy, locally grown food. In late 2019, early 2020, we were actually the community partner for a University of Canterbury student and she did a food access study as her master's thesis. And we based it around Roy Mata and Wollstone. Well, we found out that there were 29 places where you could buy food within Wollstone Village. And the supermarket was the closest thing to a place where you could buy fresh fruit and vegetables. And so, yeah, you start to see the system for what it is, which is just a whole bunch of barriers to getting to what you actually need, mm. especially when you are in a situation of poverty. Mm. So out of all the stuff that you've learned and all the experiences that you've had, of growing food and tohakai, so trying to make food accessible to people who have lots of barriers in their way, and of the challenges of our global systems. What is something that you would encourage them to actually do in response to the challenges that we're facing? Like slow down and, and really take the time to observe what's happening around us, and to us, and within us. Slow down. Take notice. How? Any time that you can spend in a more natural ecology, you're going to have the opportunity to do that. So if it's going on a hike, or participating in a community food growing project, or going for a swim in the ocean, sitting at the bottom of a waterfall, when you are present enough in those places, you will be slow, because that's the pace at which nature works. So be in those spaces and be present. Just be there. Don't be thinking about all the other stresses and anxieties that are present in your life. Find a way to leave those in the car or at home. And find time. Prioritise it. Like, it's really important. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's your local park. Mm. If that's what's accessible to you, then that's what you do. Let's go and sit under a tree and read a book. It doesn't have to cost you any money at all. In fact, it's better if it doesn't. (laughs) You don't know what you might invite by sitting in your local park underneath a tree reading a book and other people walking past. Maybe they'll actually think, I need to do that too. And so even though you're doing it to nourish yourself, you're setting an example, you're modelling a behaviour that other people may pick up on as well. So has the potential to have that multiplying effect. Yeah. We spend so much time being busy because we equate busy with successful. Take the other path. The slow one. With your eyes open and your heart open. You'll be okay. Well, more than okay, actually.
So after sitting under a tree in a park, being still and silent, somehow we felt more connected to the whenua, to each other, and to the creator of all things. It was a hard space to leave, but eventually we said goodbye to Michael. However, his words remained with us. That invitation to slow down, to be fully present, to take notice, to see, to pay attention. And back at the hut, we found ourselves talking about the need to outwork our human vocation in partnership with others. For us to be doing that vocational role recognises that we don't do it alone, but that to do it well and to do it in ways that therefore grow us in our identity means doing it with others. Mm. Because again, a part of the underlying issue here is alienation. Alienation from God, alienation from whenua, Mm. alienation from other. Then you get given this task to do, or this calling, and they're like, I'll go do that by myself now. Versus, it is not good that the earth creature, Adam, should be alone, alienated. I will make a helper in Aza as his partner, the person to work with them. Aza. 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 Helper. I've learned a, a wee trick with the Bible mm. over the years, which is when you run into a word like that, it's helpful to know like how it gets used in other parts of the mm-hmm. Bible. So do we run into the word Aza much Again? in other parts of the scriptures? It happens about 20 times. Oh, wow. So it happens maybe two or three times here in this passage, and then happens a couple of times where it speaks about other empires, this is in the <laughs> Hebrew scriptures, who are to be the Aza to Israel. Oh, Wow. But then it's used 16 times, or thereabouts, to refer to God's relationship as Aza to Israel. But I know growing up, often this passage was read, and it was read in such a way to support an argument of a subordinate relationship between male and female, Mm -hmm. who they used as a sort of a proof text for this is why men are in charge and ahead of households, and women, their job is to be the helper. Mm. So seen as sort of this inferior subordinate role. Helper mm. does have a sense of being like weaker, eh? Mm. Well, if the person didn't need to be helped in the first place, <laughs> why would they need to help her? That's true. Yeah. Can't do it by himself. Needs us. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And so it's just the sense of um, companionship in this task. And the fact that therefore elsewhere when it's used is that God is the Aza to Israel was like, well, hang on, that can't be, can't that be, can't be a subordinate, subordinate. inferior role because <laughs> God is not subordinate or inferior to Israel. God is helping Israel. So actually, if we were going to take that and then apply that to that passage, that would suggest uh, that actually the earth creature is subordinate. Mm. And in fact, the imagery that's going on here is of Adam needing a companion mm. um, to join in this vocation of tilling and keeping. And it's not a helper who's therefore inferior, but actually it's a partnership. We need each other. We need Mm. each other to do this well. And so to deal with our alienation is to be engaged in relationality, is to rediscover relationality, is to begin to discover ourselves in relationship of close proximity to others. That idea of subordination is also contradicted in the Māori translation when the description of as, as a helper for him is he hoa pai mōna, and everyone who's done any te reo Māori class will love the ao categories. And they talk of relationship and your whanaunga tanga to the thing 
And it changes in context, depending on your relationship to it, it could be an R or an or, as long as you can explain why. In this case, or. Or is the things that are of your generation or that take care of you, Hmm. not the things that you take care of. So he's gone mourner rather than mana, which changes the way that it would be read for (gasps) Māori. Sorry, I just had the drop moment on that. Mm. He hoa pai mōna. He hoa pai mōna. Mōna. It's not mana, it's mōna, as in the A category of that possessive. Mm. <gasps> okay, something that's in the or category is something that kind of provides you protection, mm-hmm. or it's something that has mana over you, Yep. and then something that's in the R category mm. is something that you protect, or mm. you have mana over, mm-hmm. and... He hoa pai mōna. Mōna. So it's like a good companion yep. that provides protection, mm-hmm. care for, for you, for me. Yeah. It's not something that requires my care. It's something that provides care to me for you. that I can't do for myself. Mm. <laughs> mōna. So what we get in the, in the Māori is mm. a way of saying that phrase that doesn't in any way, shape, or form, allow us to see a diminished version of a helper who's a subordinate, Mm. but it's a partner who I'm dependent on Mm -hmm. to be able to step into this vocation. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Mm. Mm. And is inextricably connected because actually the imagery there of they're connected to my side, part of the essence of who I am is who they are, Mm. and part of the essence of who they are is who I am. We're Mm. connected but we're other. Mm. We're not the same. I'm going to quote you two. <laughs> we're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. Not we have to carry each other. To quote Bono, we get to carry each other. We're one. There is a sense in which we are connected to each other. We're built for relationality as humans. Mm. We're one, but we're not the same mm. because it's the, the difference in the otherness which allows us then to be partners And so if we hold that in the context of, in the acceleration of our world, Mm. we've experienced more and more alienation Mm. and more and more Mm. dislocation Mm. and more and more individualization and more atomization. I'm just using lots of words that have ION at the end because it makes me sound real flesh. But the felt experience for a lot of people in life is that they're doing life by themselves. Uh, uh, you know, we have a we have an epidemic of lonely, uh, anxious, depressed people. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. And what I think is being presented to us here in, in Te Pai Pira mm. is a biblical ideal of fulfilling our calling, our vocation, like living into what it means to be truly human or to be able to experience that abundant life is doing life in partnership with others. Mm. And in some way, we actually can't mm. be fully human without being in relationship with each other, where totally. in some ways we are dependent on someone else, mm. and someone else depends on us. Mm. In one sense, it's so obvious, but also as a narrative to re-remind us in our age, where we have become at times atomized, mm. disconnected, alienated people, that those things go together, connection with Fenua, connection with God connection with each other and that they're woven into each other so what does that mean Mm. right if you are feeling lonely and isolated or you feel like there's this thing that you're made to do in the world but you feel like you're in it by yourself 
like does it does it literally just mean going and learning the name of the trees does it mean learning the name of the mountains does it mean putting yourself in proximity to the other like what do you do with this especially if you're in that what do we say alienated alienated Alienated. atomized if you're in that space what is this experience of doing this human vocation with someone and this concept of naming and being in proximity and relationship to things Mm. like what do you do with that yeah we've talked really macro haven't we um so then we get through into our cultural realities that we live in, where we spend a lot of our times on devices. I think one of the real difficulties that we face is in our current culture is that because we live in a virtual world, I think there are aspects of that virtual world that play against genuine connectedness, are antithetical, are opposite to the very sense of connectedness. And in fact, at their worst, reinforce the alienation, acceleration, atomization of our experience Mm. because of those technologies. So maybe what that might look like is go into Nahiri, hug a tree, listen to some birds. Turn off your Tamagotchi. (laughs) Find a friend. Mm. Go for a walk. Make connections again. Real ones. Uh, Yeah, real connections, tangible connections. There's something about the the body of Christ here, which is obviously, you know, a, a Pauline idea from way later in the in the biblical narrative. Mm. But there's something about our, our our relationship to one another that helps us to be the full expression of humanity that we were charged mm. to be. Mm. Um, and so, cool point. One thing you can do is go to church. Go to church. <laughs> Show up. <laughs> Show up. Showing up is actually the great currency in Te Ao Māori. Kanohikitia. If they see you and they see you consistently, they don't care what you say, they don't care how much money you drop, they don't care what else you're bringing, they care if you show up and and at important times. And that's how they will show their support or lack of support for anything or any person or any kaupapa. Showing up, man, so important. And isn't it funny the way that that spiralled in the opposite direction as well? Mm. Like there are a lot of people struggling with social anxiety. Mm. And so the very thing that we yearn for is connection, belonging, proximity to people, relationship. And yet there's this barrier Mm. that further perpetuates that sense of isolation. And the more isolated and alone you feel, the more anxious you feel about even attempting to connect with another human. Yeah, that's a great point. The thing you want is also the thing that scares you. Mm. It's fear-inducing. How does that work practically is... In our moment, some of those basic human skills of connection to land, connection to each other, connection to God through the life of prayer, some of those basic practices we've, we no longer practice. And so we've mm. lost the art of doing that. We've, we've forgotten how to do it. And so then it is very frightening like any new practice. Mm. And so then how do we encourage one another to do those things that are difficult that are awkward that are uncomfortable because it's actually really necessary it's really healthy for us long term Mm. and so that's the the graciousness therefore with each other so it's not uh, oh we need to do this and we just need to toughen up but how do we um maybe the take-home is therefore a reminder to actually what we need to do is um uh, rediscover ways of reconnecting again Mm. but doing that in graceful ways with each other, which recognises that we're um, 
one, but we're not the same, mm. and we're at different parts of the journey, and therefore graciousness with each other to do that. And that's us for part five of our journey. Make sure you listen to part six where we will move into Genesis 3 and ask ourselves how we can learn from each other and grow together. A massive mihi to Michael for being a part of this kaupapa. Ngahiri, The Many Connections, is a project funded by the Wilberforce Foundation in partnership with Scripture Union, produced by me, James Beck, with creative direction from Reverend Spanky Moore. Our music was created by the astounding Chris Williams. Check him out on Spotify. And don't forget to listen to the whole six-part series of Ngahiri. And if you like it, we'd appreciate you giving us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts so that other people can listen to this kaupapa too. Hey, ya kuane.